Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hannah and Nick. Hey, good morning. Welcome, everyone. Uh, so good to have you all with us. And again, so grateful to have uh, over 100 prospective students with us in chapel. And uh, there are certain themes in chapel that are annual, that are recurring, reoccurring. And this is one of them. This week is uh, titled Sacred Sexuality. And the reason why we title it that is because sexuality is a part of God's plan. It's part of his design. He's the originator of it. And so calling it sacred, we recognize that we are taking a conversation that in many ways is really been hijacked from the secular culture and bringing it back into the place where it belongs, which is in the community of faith. And we're really grateful to do that in a significant way. This week, we have one of our very own Dr. Peter Kapsner with us today in chapel and tomorrow. So uh, Peter's no stranger to Northwestern. Uh, and and uh, you've maybe seen him in the classroom throughout the community, and he'll be with us today and tomorrow uh, in chapel. Wednesday is our community, uh, our community, our living space chapel. So wherever you are living, so if you're living here on residence, you're going to be gathering with your RDs and your sections. If you are a commuter student, you'll meet right here in Knight Hall, and uh, you'll get to be hearing from our new director uh, uh, of commuter life, Darren Geyer. So that'll be really exciting time for you commuters. And then Thursday, prayer chapel back here in Knight Hall as one of the alternative chapels. And then Friday, praise chapel uh, as we conclude the week uh, in such a fitting way and a high note of praise. Uh, so for this morning, um, uh, I want to invite up and give a warm Northwestern welcome to Dr. Peter Kapsner. And uh, I want to invite you to place a hand out over him as we pray for him and a hand up as we pray for ourselves. Father, thank you so much that we can gather together this morning as ones who belong to you, as your children, as your beloved, as the ones whom you have chosen, adopted, and redeemed, and forgiven, and called your own. And we thank you that that is true of our brother Peter. Thank you for bringing him here to Northwestern as he has served in various ways in both university and in the media over these last eight plus years, but even bringing him here today. I thank you for um, his heart for you, um, the knowledge, the experience, the wisdom, the insight that he, by your grace, has um, been given by you to steward, and, then I, and, I, and I thank you uh, for his presence here. Would you fill him now with your spirit? Would you guard his heart? Would you guide his thoughts? Would you govern his words? And Lord, would you grow our hearts together in Christ-likeness. I pray that you would call us out of shame, out of isolation, out of bondage, and to live truly as ones who have been set free by the Son. So Lord, we thank you, we praise you, we love you. We say all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I think it, it, BK is the phrase big mood. Is that like if I say that I feel the same way about you, about me? Because I'm trying to, my ethics class has given me a number of phrases. What'd you say? Maybe 12 in all that I need to start saying to be relevant, BK? Is that right? Is big mood one of them? I'm 100% certain I'm not using that right, nor am I owning it in the correct way uh, right now. But I'll give it a shot. Uh, shout out to all of you over here as prospective students. Glad that you are here as well. It's a heck of a chapel you chose to attend here on sexuality. <laughs> Hope it's going well. Uh, and I see a couple other ethics students here in the front row, and Jake and Katie. 
um, my ethics students have challenged me to use the words uh, beloved and gerbil and marsupial as part of the talk uh, this morning. Um, and so now, there's done. How was that? <laughs> Super easy, done. Uh, it is good to be here. If you are confused this morning about questions of sexual identity, if you're confused about questions on same gender relationships and don't really know what to do in your conversations with friends or with family, if you're wondering how the church should handle these kinds of subjects, or if you are yourself wondering about your own sense of same gender attractions or gender dysphoria that you might have, well, just know that you are in good company. There's good news and bad news for you this morning. The bad news is, is that over two chapels like this, we can barely scratch the surface on this conversation. We spend in my sexuality class here at Northwestern about 10 to 15 hours on any of these topics, and it just is barely enough, and I'll say more about why here in just a minute. So if you're coming to these two chapels hoping to have a resolution on all of these very complex and sophisticated topics, I won't be able to offer that for you. They're so deeply seated and, and so uh, painful on so many different levels that we can't do all the work I would like to do in this period of time. So that's the bad news, but I do have some good news as well. That if you are confused this morning, you are indeed in good company. Because given where we've been as a country over the last 50 or 60 years or so, it would actually be stunning if you weren't confused. If you felt like, gee, I just have all of these really easy sexuality questions dialed in. I hope when you leave today that this is the good news, that you don't feel stupid for being confused. That you so don't somehow feel less than Christian for maybe some of the questions that you have or maybe the behaviors in which you've engaged or the attractions that you experience. I hope that you don't leave today feeling without hope on this journey. Because what I know about God's kingdom is there is the possibility for wholeness. There is clarity in God's kingdom, and there is peace in God's kingdom. And understanding maybe what's happened, as I've already referenced over these last 50 years or so in our country, can help us understand that we're up against quite a bit when it comes to even walking in or experience or tasting that kind of peace or wholeness. So I hope the good news in this is that there's even some sort of sense of peace in just knowing that it's a challenging topic, that if you are confused or if you're hurting around these sorts of things, well, you're in good company. It would be sort of weird if you weren't. Because the challenge is immense, as I've said. I'll outline this morning uh, several significant forces that have sort of developed over these last 50 years that really have maybe been sort of the central cause of the confusion around so much of our sexuality and where we've been and where we're headed. And tomorrow, then, in chapel, we'll bring sort of the good news of a hopeful future in the midst of all of this. But in getting started today and talking through some of these different dynamics and circumstances that give rise to the confusion, one of the most primary ones that I've found, and especially teaching this class on sexuality here at Northwestern the last six or so years, is that the church, we really haven't talked much about sexuality. Yeah, I'll say that again. The church... We really haven't talked much about sexuality. Now, I like this. This is going to be, we could be here for several hours. This could be really <laughs> exciting. 
But it, it was around maybe like last week was Valentine's Day week, and at least for me growing up and for many of the students as they talk about their experience in church, that was maybe the one week in which we would bust open the box on sexuality. It was dating week. It's time to talk about this. And so we'd come together on a Wednesday night at youth group, and maybe we would divide up all the boys and say, stop doing porn, and we'd divide up all the young women and say, dress nicely, and then we'd meet at a poll, and that would be it. Other than the message is sex is bad, 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 wrong, 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 don't, don't, don't. Now put on a ring and have at it. You can have some Christian sanctioned sex. I guess we all went to the same church growing up. I know my experience was in about fifth or sixth grade is I was in Sunday school class, and it was the only time we talked about sex in, in the church growing up in which I was, and we had this very intense algebra teacher who was also our Sunday school teacher, and he divided up like us five boys, and again, we were about 12 years old, and here was the talk. As he lined us up against the radiator in the fellowship hall, he said, so here's the deal. You're about ready to go through puberty, and when you do, you're gonna start noticing some young women around you, and you're gonna wanna do this, and you're gonna wanna do that, and you're gonna wanna do more of this, and more of that, and then more of this, and don't! And he just shouted it out. And it's sort of like our faces were plastered against the radiator at that point. And that was it. <laughs> Church has been relatively quiet about these things over these years, and our culture hasn't been quiet by contrast. I don't know if you've ever been to the city of Jerusalem, but if you have, if you've been there, you know that when you walk around Jerusalem proper, you're not seeing the original city of Jerusalem. You're seeing a city that has been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt so many different times that if you wanted to get any sense of the original Jerusalem, you would have to carefully dig through all the layers of dirt and maybe you could get a little window into what Jerusalem was meant to be. And so sexuality has gone through much of the same process over these last 60 or so years. The norms have been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. I'm old enough now, at 48 years old, nearly dead, to know <laughs> of what I speak. And so in that destruction and rebuilding, the church has, as we stayed silent, and so there's been a different voice defining the conversation. But I remember um, back in the church that uh, the divorce rate spiked in the 1970s to about 45%. And that was after a long period of a divorce rate being only 6% or so many generations, many centuries. And so when divorce began to be a conversation in our church in the 1970s, when it spiked so much, it was very limited conversation. We didn't even really know why, but it was the product of the 1960s generation that was defined primarily by the Woodstock generation. And it was anti-authority on all possible levels, primarily because there was a perceived sense of corruption around the Vietnam War. That the Vietnam War was a very immoral war, a war, and we had no business being involved. And so the protest took the shape of, we should make love, not war. And combine that in the 1960s as a time in which uh, drugs were starting to run rampant. If you're part of Silicon Valley back in that time, you would know that there was the idea that if you took LSD, it could actually sort of open up creative pathways in the brain so that you could take humankind to the next technological level. And so drug experimentation was a big deal and you combine that the, the, the lowering of inhibitions from the drugs 
with make love and not war, and pretty soon, for the first time, we see all of this multi multiple partner sexuality happening in our country, and it's being glorified. Well, those people started getting married in the 1970s, and guess what? The institution of marriage was also being raged against, and the divorce rate went from 6% to over 45, sometimes 55%. And in the church at that time, the best that we really could do was sort of almost just have that, that typical sort of gossip grapevine, right? That happens in Christian communities from time to time. I have a prayer request, <laughs> which is usually code for I want to tell you some really good dirt that I have. And so we'd say so-and-so is getting divorced, but we didn't know what to do about it. And the only conversation that we had is whether a divorced person could lead worship, and that was sort of the extent of it. And what was shocking, and divorce over time, I think, became normal, as it so often does. It's just a layer of dirt in this landscape. Well, as a child in the 1980s, so as a child of the divorce culture, in which these sexual norms began to change, and uh, the celebration of extramarital sexuality began to be present in the 1980s in ways it hadn't been before. I don't know if you've ever listened to the music <laughs> of the 1980s. Every once in a while, my wife Hallie and I think, Let's have a little nostalgia, and we'll turn on 80s on Age and Sirius XM, and we'll have our five kids packed in the van, and we want to introduce them to the music of the 1980s. And the first song that comes on is When Doves Cry from Prince. <laughs> um, okay, we'll just change the channel. And then we flip it back, and now it's Foreigner with Urgent, Urgent, It's So Urgent. We think, gosh, was every song about sex? And we flip back one way and flip back, and now it's Tone Loke, and we're all doing the wild thing, and it's the music of the 1980s. 80s, this was the music of our high school dances at that time. This is what we danced to, celebrating the, the extramarital sexuality that began to run rampant. And people's, the, the rise of sort of the lack of virginity heading into marriage was profound. And so by the 1990s, sexually transmitted diseases were significantly on the rise, including AIDS. And so the conversation began to be, especially in our schools, along the lines of, well, of course, you're going to have sex. Just make sure what? Just make sure it's oh, indeed. And so the conversation began to be whether we should distribute, distribute birth control in schools. And it was shocking. What? But then the shocking becomes normative, and it just sort of is the way that it is. And we just sort of we, we sort of think that what we see on the surface on this landscape is the way it's always been, but it hasn't. It's been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. I remember around that time I was uh, watching an episode of must-see TV on Thursday nights, and there was a throwaway episode that happened at 7.30 in the evening when our collective country would come together before cable and internet and all of that sort of stuff, and we would all watch the same TV shows, and Thursday night was must-see TV, and the throwaway episode that night started with a young woman who was running into a coffee shop in New York City, having left the altar. She was fully dressed in her bridal gear, and she was uh, reestablishing her acquaintance with Monica and Joey and Chandler. And they were seeing things on this show that Hallie and I were sort of laughing, not knowing if we can laugh and still be Christians. And we're, and we're laughing and we're going, but that's disturbing too. And it was shocking. You can't say this stuff on TV, but you watch a few seasons and pretty soon what is shocking becomes normal. And it's another layer put down. 1990s, late 1990s, the question when I was in pastoral ministry in church was what to do when people are living together and they want to get married. And I remember in pastoral ministry, the only answer that we had in the church I was a part of at the time was, well, if you're going to live together, <laughs> at least sleep in separate bedrooms. Probably not the most effective 
form of counseling. The church is silent, another layer is down to the point where I know a lot of young people believe it's probably best to try each other on sexually before you take the plunge. As if sex at the age of 19 is gonna be the same as the age of 49 or 59. Make a decision based on that. Early 2000s, pornography went from something that was under a parent's bed that maybe you access once or twice a year to something that was in your pocket all day long on the computer that was there. And the church didn't know what to do with that other than to maybe get into accountability groups and try to control the behavior. 2008, 9, 10, when I was teaching a gender sexuality class at Bethel, uh, all of the questions my students asked were around porn and living together and extramarital sexuality. Any idea what questions were going on that hadn't yet been asked? It's all around same gender marriage. Nobody was asking that question yet, but in 2012, 13, 14, as the marriage amendment shifted the conversation in our country and all the questions of that, and go to 2016, 17, 18, and it's gender dysphoria, and now I keep having to add to my syllabus different topics, the most recent of which is sex trafficking. And it's been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt, but it's hard to even dig through all the layers, isn't it? To wonder what is authentic and healthy and hopeful sexuality. It's one of the things that we're up against. If you're confused, it's not because you're less than Christian. If you're confused, it's not because you're dumb. There's been a lot that has happened. You add that with some of the university environments in which I find myself, and we see that there is an active force within some secular universities to redefine the very conversation on gender. I know that when my wife Hallie was in a sociology class at KU, Kansas University, in the late 1980s, the sociologist there said that there's two institutions that we absolutely have to do away with if we're ever gonna be healthy as a country. Two historic institutions, anybody wanna take a guess? It's, yep, it's family, marriage, and church. If we can get rid of those two, we'll finally have a healthy country. And I have a PhD in a sociological discipline from the University of Edinburgh, and I loved my time there in Scotland, but I also know what the pressures were to do away with the family and the church, I was at a, a college uh, a couple of years ago doing a presentation for the whole faculty on sexuality and gender. And I didn't know that I was actually part of a panel and the PhD sociologist from a secular university was the first to present. And this is what, and we have a photo of this, I think this is what she put up as part of the presentation, if we can put that up now. She put up um, that here's our best understanding of sexuality is the genderbred person. And in the genderbred person, you can see especially in those top two categories that uh, there's a belief within university sociology that actually gender is a continuum. There's no such thing as male or female. You kind of find yourself on every, any given point in the conversation on any given day. There's no such thing as a male or a female anymore. Now, I thought I was presenting on gender. I had no idea that I was part of a panel, so I'm texting Hallie crazily going, oh, what am I gonna say after this one? on this, and we ended up in a delightful conversation, but it certainly is the scope of the conversation that what's happening in those circles that's defining gender for our country at university life very much is a move towards underpinning everything where there's no longer male, there's no longer female. So if you're confused, it might be for a good reason. It's not because you're less than Christian. Add into that multiple voices into this, and. The idea that in today's day and age with social media, it's kind of hard to tell, isn't it? Those voices that are credible or authoritative on these subjects. 
sort of the idea that what is credible and what is authoritative now is simply that which is viral. What's authoritative and credible is that which is viral. You ever go to a YouTube channel or a YouTube video and you see it only has maybe 300 views? Well, that can't be, <laughs> that can't be right. But if it has 3 million views, that's for sure correct. I, I fall into that myself. I immediately just click away from anything with such few views. Or we were talking in my class the other day that it's about 99% of the time that none of us make it past the first page of Google when we're searching for information. You ever make it to page three on Google? You think, who are these worthless people on this page? <laughs> first page for sure, and we hardly know how much money and time is being spent to get on that first page of Google so you can control the flow of information about that. And of course, in our social media sites now, it's a place to come out of the closet in a variety of ways. There are now uh, somewhat over 140 different ways to define yourself in terms of sexuality and gender. It's LGBTQ plus and plus and plus, and it's exploded over the past couple of years to nearly 140 different ways, and it's hard to know what's credible, what's authoritative, and the last piece of all of this then is that the church has had some pretty rough headlines over the last 18 months, hasn't it, related to sexuality? You see what's coming out of the Protestant church, the way that women have been treated at really large churches and the abuse of power. And of course, you see the really difficult headlines coming out of the Catholic Church, where years and years and years, generations of sexual abuse have been swept under the rug. And so I don't know what you hear with your friends as you're having these conversations, but the kinds of things I hear are, if the church is ever going to say anything about this, the very understandable response is, who are you to say? You, hypocrite. What could you possibly have to say about this? Why don't you put your own So if we're confused, say it one more time. That's not because we're less than Christian or stupid or just don't know a way forward. There's a lot. There's a lot. Again, if you look at my syllabus from 2008 on this subject and look at it in 2019, you would see dramatic differences as the conversation has been shaped and reshaped in all of this. And so the resulting impact is that it's hard to know who we are and whose we are. I think what's interesting about that, and by the way, can I just look for a show? How many of you are at least mildly confused on the subject? Can you just raise your hand? A lot of you. Me too. <laughs> and I teach this stuff. <laughs> and I love when students ask questions because then they're like, yeah, Kapsner, and I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. And then go do some research on this. It's been an incredible journey, an incredible ride. But what I found is we're in a season in which God's people don't really remember who they are and whose they are. But it, the good news in all of that is that this isn't the first time in the redemptive history of God that his children have lost sight of who they are and whose they are. When I look back in the Old Testament at the time of the Exodus, the Israelites' very sense of identity was threatened by the Pharaoh of Egypt, who went to, he issued that decree to kill off all of the male babies of the nation of Israel. Now, I don't know if you know why it was that specific decree. Like, why didn't he just, you know, put bad things in their punch? Why didn't he kill all of the female babies as well? Why didn't he, like, any number of bad things the Pharaoh could have done. Why did he choose that? Why did he want to kill off all of the male children? Well, it's because the male children were those who helped carry the very sense of Hebrew identity into the future. Their very sense of heritage, their very sense of who they were and whose they were. 
for the male children in that culture held the traditions and the rituals and the beliefs and the ideas and the practices that are so important for understanding one's identity. And so much of our sense of self is shaped by the community in which we walk. And there's so much pressure on all of you to define yourself. <laughs> and it's really hard because we don't know the voice into which to attend. But if you read the story, Pharaoh was worried that the Israelites would eventually rise up and wage war against him. And so he thought, here's what I can do to make sure that doesn't happen. I will kill off all of the carriers of the future. All those people who know who they are now, let's do away with all of them because then in generations to come, they won't remember who they are and whose they are as God's children. They might just even get assimilated into Egypt and begin to think exactly how the Egyptians will think. And if they're not careful, they might even begin to believe that their identity is Egyptian themselves. And instead of rising up or asking questions, continue to serve Pharaoh and they don't even know it. I'm haunted by a quote from scholar Stephen Luke, who says that the purest form of power is when you have somebody in your power and they don't even know it. The purest form of power is when you have somebody in your power and they don't even know it. Because if that's true, you don't ask questions, you make different kinds of assumptions, you just sort of think this is always the way it's been. And these are always the way people have thought of themselves. And I'm telling you that by being alive for the last 48 years, the questions of today are not the ways in which people have always thought about themselves. We've lived in a considerable deconstruction and reconstruction. But God's people are always being threatened by the forces around them to forget who they are and whose they are. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar was up to when he wanted Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego to eat of the food of Babylon. He knew if he could get the best and the brightest, the, the, the thought leaders of Israel, to eat the Babylonian food and engage in the Babylonian culture, that eventually they'd be like, hey, Kata, I like this Babylonian stuff. And they might become Babylonian themselves and therefore bringing all the people with them, forgetting that they're Egyptian, forgetting that they're Israelites, forgetting that they're actually captives. They'll begin to think that this is who I am. So what was happening to the least and the lost? and the broken, and the hurting, and the sinners, and the hopeless in Jesus' day as well. Having been given the message by the religious establishment and the religious elite at that time that they were outcasts out of the mainstream of religious life, and this is their fate, this is who they should ever be. Outcast you are, sinner you are, outcast you will ever be, there is no hope and no future. They had forgotten that. They had forgotten that they were God's children. That, that was the only identity that they so the pattern repeats itself over and over again. The children of God forget who they are and whose they are. And we stand here in 21st century America, and I would at least dare to suggest that maybe it's that same pattern that plagues us now today. As we're defining ourselves in so many different ways, 60 years of being destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt, we may not see ourselves as Egyptians or Babylonians or the lame or the crippled, but we have all sorts of other identities that we can pick from now whether it be gay or straight, lesbian or bi, cisgender or queer. And we have sociologists and psychologists and Instagram and Snapchat and politicians and Facebook and Google all helping us along the way with all the different identities. And now we're teaching even our first graders in school about all the different options that they can pick from. I have a friend of mine who's a middle school counselor and she was away on leave for about five years and when she came back to her middle school job, maybe about a year and a half ago, she said, you know, Peter, when I left, 
my middle school counseling job, I had exactly no people coming into my office wondering about their sense of identity. Now my office is full all day long, all week, with that singular question. So confusion reigns, there's pain and turmoil. I think we know and we have friends where suicides are at an all-time high. If we're really heading down a wonderful trajectory with all these questions, the fruit being borne by that doesn't seem to relate. So with all of that as the landscape, I do have good news this morning. That there is, in the midst of all of this, when God's children lose their way and they forget who they are and whose they are, that there is a beautiful gossamer thread that you can pluck all throughout God's beautiful redemptive history. And that is within his never-ending kingdom. There is a God who passionately pursues to rescue and to heal and to restore, who is always about setting people free. And he reminds us of our identities as he does that. One of my favorite pictures in the text is when Jesus is presented with a leper in front of him who is sort of all disfigured by the leprosy that's coursing through him. And what does Jesus do? Jesus unwinds the leprosy from that person and reveals the true and beautiful face of that person as that child of God, no longer the leper. And he calls out all throughout those times, beloved community, to continue to shine light and hope and peace in the midst of all of this. And we're going to talk tomorrow about that ever-rescuing God. And if you're confused about your own identity, experiencing attractions that you don't understand, have a sexual past that you don't think can ever be redeemed, to all of that I would say, belong. Real theological terms, I know. God can redeem and restore all things. If the cross and the empty tomb is subject to a power greater than itself, then I will not serve that king. But the cross and the tomb can heal and restore all things. So let me close with this then this morning. You are not gay or straight. You are not cis or bi. You are not lesbian or queer or androgynous or bigender or transsexual or intersexual or pansexual or polyamorous or Z or Zer. You have one identity, one. Your image bearing children of the king. Regardless of past, regardless of present, regardless of questions or confusion or fractures or doubt or fear, know this, you have come from the hand of God. You bear his image and you may have forgotten and you may have many voices of many pharaohs speaking into your life related to who you are and whose you are, but the only true identity you really have is as an image-bearing child of the king. There's one. Second Corinthians 6, I will be a father to you, says the Lord Almighty and you will be my sons, and you will be my daughters. I have a quote, uh, I recommend reading it, uh, from the writer Henry Nouwen, who writes about the return of the prodigal son and the identity that we have as God's beloved child in this world. So what I invite you to do here is I'll spend the last minute or so just reading this quote. Just uh, find a comfortable place and close your eyes and listen to the words, kind of avoid the distractions around us. And listen to the words of our true identity. When I leave home, it's living as though I do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. But home is the center of my being where I can hear that voice that says this, you are my beloved. On you, my favor rests. 
The same voice that gave life to the first Adam and spoke to Jesus, the second Adam, is the same voice that speaks to all the children of God and sets them free to live in the midst of a dark world while remaining in the light. I have heard that voice. It has spoken to me in the past and continues to speak to me now. It is the never-interrupted voice of love, speaking from eternity and giving life and love wherever it is heard. When I hear that voice, I know that I am home with God and I have nothing any longer to fear. For as the beloved of my heavenly Father, I can walk in the valley of darkness. No evil will I fear. As the beloved, I can cure the sick and raise the dead, cleanse the lepers and cast out demons. Having received without charge, I can give without charge. And as the beloved, I can now confront and console, admonish and encourage without fear of rejection or need for affirmation. As the beloved, I can even suffer persecution without desire for revenge and receive praise without using it as proof of my goodness. Jesus has made it clear to me that the same voice that he heard called him the beloved can also be heard by me. Would you stand as we close in prayer this morning? And tomorrow, after all of this sort of tough news of the sexual landscape and the, the archaeology that we have now been a part of over these last 60 years, we'll speak some hope and health and healing into the midst of this. So let me just pray over you as you go here for the rest of your God, we ask for the voice of your spirit to continue to reign in our lives, that you would speak truth and just remind us who we are and whose we are as your beloved children. Minister among us and teach us how to walk in the light in one of such very difficult topics and empower all of the people in this room to do just that today. We ask in the beautiful name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your spirit. Amen. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody.